Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here today. We're excited for Financially Ever After. And so I want to take a moment to introduce our guest today, Nancy Goldfarb. And we've gotten to know each other over the years. And she's someone that I respect. In fact, someone that if I was on a desert island, I would say she definitely is welcome on that island. Someone that is both just a very kind, ethical, understanding, compassionate person, but brings a huge amount of financial expertise as well. And it's nice to see that combination because you don't see it too often. And she has her own experience, her own story. Back in 2008, she became suddenly single too. And she learned from a hard experience that it's critically important to use professionals to get that guidance at the very outset of a life transition, like a separation or a divorce. Today, it's a lesson that she employs in the service of others who are going through similar life transitions. She has worked in the finance field for many years and actually holds a Bachelor's of Science in Economics from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. She also has an MBA in finance from one of my alma maters, who I really love, New York University, and she went to the Stern School of Business there. She's a certified financial planner, a certified public accountant, as well as a certified divorce financial analyst. She also does works in the area of collaborative law, and we have other great podcasts, just so you know, that explain a little bit more about what collaborative law is. So if you're interested, please check those out because it's a great method for some people to be able to go through the divorce process in a less adversarial way. She's also a member of the New York State Council on Divorce Mediation, and she places the highest value in trust and sincerity. And I love this. I love this. Her three C's of business essentially are competence, clarity, and compassion. I feel like those are three C's that we can use in everyday life, let alone, you know, business. So I'm just so honored to have you here, Nancy, and, you know, excited to talk a little bit about in particular, the tax aspect of what you need to be thinking about going through the divorce process. And you bring to this literally being in the trenches doing taxes, as well as a higher level, you going through this experience too. So you bring a lot of insight into this. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Stacy. Well, good. I would love to just get started because we have so much going on. For a lot of women, they're not sure whether or not they might need someone like a financial, like you and I, a certified divorce financial analyst to help them with their case. Do you have any tips about what are the types of cases or times when you might need that? And also, when is the best time to reach out? Because there may be women who are not sure if they're going to get divorced. There might be women who are actually in the process, maybe even 
created a, a settlement proposal that they have sent to their soon-to-be ex or received a settlement proposal. You know, when you think about this, you know, what is that ideal time for someone to reach out? As early as possible. As early in the process, if you're thinking of it, if you're thinking of divorce, if you're going through the divorce, contact a CDFA, a CPA. Divorce financial planning is a properly structured financial plan. It enables you to face any financial challenge that may present itself at each stage of your life. Through the financial planning process, we can help you assess your financial needs and develop strategies that will enable you to achieve your goals and strengthen your financial security. Seeing Consulting a CDFA or CPA to seek financial security, to educate yourself and empower yourself is so important. The Financial professional will give a lifestyle analysis, financial projections, and do a successful implementation and periodic review of your financial plan to ensure financial independence during your working years and through your retirement years. So Nancy, what I'm hearing is it's kind of like the earlier, the better. And Yes. You know, I liken it to right now I'm training for a half Ironman, which is, it's a triathlon. It's 70 miles. I know it sounds kind of crazy. It's 56 mile bike. It's a 1.2 mile swim and a 13.1 mile run. And I think of the divorce journey in some ways, not to make light of it in any way, because that's not what this is. This is meant to do. But the training for something like that, you can't just start the day before. It's like training for a marathon. It's over time. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a long time. And you want to get the right training program in the very beginning. So you have the support. I have a coach. You have a coach to help you through. And what I'm hearing from you, too, is that with a divorce or separation, you want that training plan. You want that coach in the very beginning as well so that you have the right tools and the right people around you from the very outset to make Mm -hmm. those smart decisions. Does that sound right? Correct. The CDFA is an experienced financial professional who's completed the training, education, and certification process and can help you right from the beginning collect, organize, prepare the financial information, and identify which financial information is most important. An experienced CDFA can handle both routine financial details and many critical calculations. So important to start early. So with that, you talked a little bit about a lifestyle analysis, projections, implementation. A lifestyle analysis, that's not something that a lot of people really understand of what that is and why that's important. And essentially what it is, is it's looking at someone's expenses and dissecting them, you know, looking at all of your year-end credit card statements, your year-end checking account, saving account statements, and piecing together that budget. Now a question, and I'd love to hear this from you, Nancy, you know, professional to professional, often we'll go back and we'll look at 
one, two, or even three years of expenses to make sure that we have a handle on all the, you know, budget items that sometimes we forget about. I've talked about how I, I got a parking ticket last fall when I went and took my son to soccer. And I swear it wasn't my fault. So no one listening to this judge me because even though it said no parking, there were tons of other cars. Well, funny enough, I was the only one who got a ticket. It turned out that they were all undercover police cars. That's why they didn't get a ticket. <laughs> but that would be an example um, of something that I wouldn't put in my budget. Whereas a lifestyle analysis, because you're going through each piece, it, it really does bring all of that together. But for you, you know, for someone to go back and look, have that professional, that CDFA look at one year, when might that be ideal? versus looking at, let's say, three years? Are there times when you might need to look at a few years other than just the most recent? Absolutely, Stacey. We often go back one, three, and in some cases, five years, Mm -hmm. both looking for assets that we may find or debts to uncover all of those, as well as three years of tax returns. In order to make sure and get an equitable, fair distribution of assets in the divorce, we have to identify marital property. Now, marital property is assets acquired during the marriage. Mm -hmm. And sometimes assets are split evenly. Sometimes they're offset and split in a different way, but fairly. So we want to go back one or three years and look at all assets from stock options, pensions, the marital home, automobiles, retirement, vacation homes. And then we want to see after we do the financial analysis and determine what have been the expenses over the past one or three years and what have been the assets over one or three years, then we have to see about the equitable distribution of dividing these assets. And that's where a CDFA, CPA is also necessary because you have to beware, for example, of retaining a greater portion of low-cost basis stocks than your ex-spouse the client may owe taxes. Well, let's stop there Wait, because um, that's where they would see use. Yeah, see, a financial cost, expert. Yeah, the low cost uh, basis stock. Something I just want to clarify too, because I think as CDFA, sometimes we, we slipped into that jargon. And so, low cost basis stock is essentially stock that they have been purchased thirty years ago for, let's say, two dollars a share, and now, well, it's you look at your account and instead of $2 a share, it's gone up to a value of maybe $300. That would be quite a wonderful investment. So of that $300 that it's now valued at, if you were to sell that stock and you have $2 that you purchase it for, what you call your basis, you're going to owe taxes on capital gains of essentially $298. So you're right that you know, having someone go through a CDFA to dissect each of these different assets is really important because a dollar that's in an investment account after tax is going to be worth something very different than maybe a dollar that's in the checking or savings or even a dollar that might be in your retirement account. So I I agree that that's a huge piece and really important to look at. 
Also, a CDFA, a CPA, would help someone starting the process going through the divorce to make sure we ascertain all the assets. You could say who holds the title and equitable distribution or what can be divided in a divorce. And the answer would be it doesn't matter how the asset is titled, what sometimes matters, but it's property acquired during the marriage that would be looked at for equitable distribution. The property may have been acquired by either party during the marriage and may be in either party's name. So a CDFA would help you with that. An example, because I do hear a lot of women say, well, you know, I assume I'm not entitled to his retirement accounts because it's in his name. But Um, we know that that's not necessarily the case, especially if he's been putting money in during the marriage. You're right. Don't take those glasses off. Ladies, take those glasses off that you might be wearing where the name of the account matters. Because guess what? It doesn't necessarily matter. There are other things to think about. Exactly, Stacey. Thank you. You have to ensure a full inventory of all the assets, all the liabilities. And we would look at the couple's net worth. We would discuss your objectives and interests and discuss alternatives. If there's a retirement account, it would require a quadro to be prepared that would divide a defined contribution plan, such as a 401k or a defined benefit plan. So yes, if one spouse has been working throughout the marriage and has earned retirement assets, that would be subject to division. And that's really important because do you feel like there's still misinformation out there that, well, you know, we bought the vacation home when we were married, but he didn't put the title in my name. It was only in his name, but the money used to buy it was earnings from the marriage. So there's a lot in, you know, unfortunately what this leads to is a lot of women feeling really financially vulnerable and frightened and, you know, not sure if they're going to be okay. Women need advice tailored to them. Consider these factors. Women live longer in general. Mm -hmm. Women, we're the first generation of women who have had careers that defined our very being. Mm -hmm. Women are more likely to have taken time off from the workforce. Mm -hmm. Statistically, we have likely earned less than men. And typically, we, I could say, are less financially literate than men, but not really. I think this is a chance when someone is going through a divorce or is going through a transition to seek financial education from a CDFA or CPA, and that is empowering. You know, I so appreciate you sharing that, Nancy, because so many women, I will tell you, myself included, I never expected to go into the career of finance. In fact, had you told me as a little girl that, you know, you're going to grow up to be a certified financial planner and a certified divorce financial analyst, I truly would have believed you were talking about someone else, not me, because I was not the girl who felt comfortable raising her hand in math. And I'm the girl that really struggled with calculus. Thank goodness in my job, I don't need calculus. But 
you know, we as women, sometimes there's that myth that we have, that we think, that we buy into, that we're not good with money or we can't, you know, we're not as adept at the financials. But what we've seen, and I think you've seen this too, we just lack education, right? Yes. We just lack education. Of course, no one would expect you to know how to drive a car unless you actually had that experience and had someone teach you. So why are we expecting women to know all this stuff when we actually haven't really sat down and had the tools given to us? And we have to address issues that are specific to women, aging, caretaking, caregiving, social connections, setting financial goals such as net worth and retirement planning. Mm -hmm. We want women to be confident, to have the knowledge to make decisions for their future. Exactly. And do you agree that we have, as women, need to, I would say, even plan more carefully because we are going to live much longer than our exes. Our medical costs in retirement and beyond will be greater. We're three times more likely to need long-term care. And it's all a function of us living longer lives. And I would even say that, you know, the retirements that we have as women today is not necessarily the retirement that our parents had. We're much more active. We're much more engaged. We're healthier. And so we are traveling too, which, you know, are all great things. But I'd love to talk to you more of kind of the nuts and bolts. We've talked about asset division, dividing those assets. We've talked a little bit also about that just because an account might be titled in your husband's name, doesn't mean that it's his alone that could be and most likely is marital property. We've talked also about how important understanding your spending is and what we talked about with the lifestyle analysis. And developing a budget going forward. Exactly. One of the big pieces that a lot of women reach out to us with questions about is the biggest asset, which is the home. And I would love to talk to you a little bit more about Particularly, there's been some changes. There's been some changes with the tax law of how much interest you can deduct on a mortgage. Also, how much in real estate taxes you're able to deduct that, unfortunately, make keeping the home and owning the home more expensive in 2019 going forward than it has in the past. So there's that piece. But then I'd love for you to, I'd love to have a discussion about when should you keep the home and when do you need to sell? For many people, their largest asset. Good question. And this can be dealt with on a few levels. The first decision is how you plan to divide or sell the marital residence. And then I'll get into the tax changes okay, on either if you're keeping the marital residence, if you're moving to another residence as to whether to buy or rent. So in dividing the marital home, there's many options. You could sell the house and split the proceeds now, or you could trade off against other assets that are marital property. So I keep the house and you take more of the retirement or he keeps the house, you take more of another asset to compensate you. And the CDFA, CPA 
would help you with that because not all assets are equal, which we can get into later on the tax. But another option would be a partial buyout, 25% of 50%. Now, when I say 50%, normally if you're buying out the spouse's half, it would be 50%. But we have to think creatively out of the box. Perhaps the parties both jointly want to delay the sale until a later date, until after the children graduate. And then there's even more options. You and your spouse could keep the house, take turns living there and nesting. So the children stay in one place and the parents each rotate to another apartment house. Mm -hmm. There's many options. What we have to think about is to review the financial aspects of each option. There have been recent tax changes, as Stacey just mentioned, and the deductions on a residence are capped or set at a limit until 2025. Mortgage interest, you can deduct the interest only on principal up to principal of $750,000 if married and $375,000 if single or filing separate. That's a big change. That's a big change, but it's still a good deduction. Mm -hmm. It's a very big change. It used to be a million plus 100,000 home equity. They've lowered that now to 750,000. But if you think about a 5% mortgage on 750,000 and you think about the new standard deduction and elimination of personal exemptions, this would still help to itemize, whether it's every other year or each year, and get further deductions. So a CDFA or CPA would look at the individual's income and prior tax returns and give you a decision on this. Another important factor in deciding is the tax changes Stacy mentioned on SALT, which is state and local taxes or the deduction is capped at $10,000. Now, if you met with a tax professional and you are thinking of starting a business or you already have a business, there's some suggestions I would make on that and there's some planning to do. But in the simplest sense, right now, salt deduction is capped at $10,000. So we have to think if there's a high property tax Mm-hmm. on the marital residence. What are the creative solutions? Yeah. So I'll give you some first, and I'm sure you know of places too, but so my husband and I, our accountant just did the calculations and we are going to owe a ton of taxes this year. And this is why our real estate taxes on our apartment are about $25,000 a year. Then On top of that, we pay New York state taxes and also New York city taxes. Well, those three taxes combined, which is, you know, tens of thousands of dollars before we could deduct a hundred percent of that off of our income. And so it actually really helped us not any longer because of what you just talked about the amount that we can deduct out of that tens of thousands of dollars between the real estate tax we pay, this New York state tax we pay, as well as the New York city tax, 
the total amount is $10,000. Yeah. So we got this news in late December. I mean, we, we kind of knew, obviously, it was going to impact us. But what we ended up doing is we ended up pre-funding our charitable contributions for the next five That's years. Sort of, yes. And we put a large amount of stock that we have and we put it in what's called a donor advised fund on December 30th, 2018. So we could take that and try and use that to offset some of the taxes now that we're going to pay because we can only deduct $10,000 for the real estate, New York City, and the state taxes that we pay. And, you know, there are other parts of the country, I'm from Michigan, where this doesn't hit as hard. Where I grew up, I think my parents' real estate taxes might have been, you know, $4,000 a year. We lived out in the country. There was, you know, very small Michigan state tax too, and there was no city. But for high tax states like New York and California, where the cost of real estate and the taxes is also high, we're definitely, definitely feeling it. So it's important to talk to your CPA so that you're not going to have this tax surprise and you can try and plan for it. And I imagine it also has an impact on whether or not you can afford to keep the house. That's a very important point, Stacey. Also, they increase the limit on charitable donations so people can give more. And that's one of the itemized deductions on the tax return. There's also medical expenses. So if you do some planning and try to plan as many of medical deductions and charitable donations for the same year or Mm -hmm. years. Kind of grouping them together. Grouping. Group them together so you can itemize them. Because tell us a little bit more about the Sarah deduction. Well, we'll get to that next. And also I want to mention on the limit on state and local property tax. The IRS has provided safe harbors if you're starting a business, if you already have a business, to deduct certain payments made to a charitable organization in exchange for state and local tax credit. Business entities, perhaps if you file a Schedule C, you have a sole proprietorship or another type of business entity, you should consult a tax professional. And because Stacy's absolutely right, there is a new standard deduction. It goes up slightly every year in 2018. It was 12,000 for single, 18,000 for head of household, 24,000 for married. It does increase slightly for cost of living from year to year, but one has to plan as Stacy did, to have enough deductions so that you can decrease your taxes. And charitable contributions is a great way to do it. I know. So for you know those of you listening, how it works, if you're married, you get to take that standard deduction of 24000 If you're single, let's say 12000 And so if you've given to charity, let's say 3000 that year, you have real estate taxes of another three and your total deductions are 6,000 there. And then you look at what the government allows you to take the 12,000, which one should you do? Should you take the 6,000 where 
and itemize or should you take the 12? Well, of course you should take the 12. So why we did this, that 24,000 that my husband and I could take, we wanted to get above that number. And so that's why we added money to the donor advised fund. I'll tell you also, I did a revamp of our whole house. I donated 24 bags of toys, books, and clothes to the Goodwill. We took the 10,000 for the real estate taxes and our state and local. And we took a few other small things too to try and get us up as high as we can so that it made sense to itemize versus just take that lower standard deduction of 24,000. So that's what a standard deduction is, no matter what you're entitled to that. So you're entitled to the standard deduction. And what our goal is, is to see can we itemize to be able to deduct even more than that? Right. And there's other aspects of the marital home or your new home that you can itemize. The IRS has ruled that interest on a home equity loan is deductible if the funds are used to buy, build, or substantially improve the home that secures the loan. So not for a vacation, but for an addition or something that adds value to the home talk about vacation. The tax changes on the residence, the limits are on both primary and secondary or vacation homes. Mm -hmm. So that $750,000 mortgage may be on a combination of first homes and vacation homes. Vacation homes and residences do offer owners tax breaks, similar but not identical. Vacation homes offer owners the opportunity to earn tax-advantaged or sometimes tax-free income. This combination of current income and tax breaks combined with potential for long-term appreciation of a primary or secondary home can make it an attractive investment. So a CDFA, CPA will look at many factors when going through a divorce, should you refinance the mortgage? There's many things to think about. Do you take the vacation home and rent it out? Correct. Does that make sense? And if you do rent it out, what are some strategies that someone might think about of trying to reduce the income coming in? Because you alluded to it kind of quickly, but I think what you just said was really powerful of there are some tax advantages of having a vacation home and getting tax-free income. And really what that is, is keeping that mortgage on your vacation home, tracking all the real estate tax expense, tracking all the maintenance expense, keeping the house fit with your boiler and everything working fine, but also maybe even the landscaping, keeping track of all of those dollars down to the penny so that each dollar you can use to offset the income you would receive from renting it out. And we see quite a few people in the Hamptons do this, where over the summer, they might be able to command for August a $50,000 rental for that month, which normally would be 100% taxable at ordinary income, the highest tax bracket. But what they do, which is so smart, is they track all the landscaping costs for that month, any maintenance for that month, any dollars that had to be paid on the mortgage. And the 50000 can be whittled down significantly. In fact, we've even seen some great tax planning of showing a loss, a loss. So instead of 
that $50,000 being taxable, someone's able to figure out, well, I had $60,000 of expenses on that house. And so when it comes to taxes, none of that $50,000 is taxable. It's free money in your pocket, which is, I mean, it's beautiful. So exactly like you said, there are some really interesting investment opportunities that if you don't think you can save and keep the vacation home just for you know primary use, just for your use with your family, maybe you can rent it out for a little bit to increase your cash flow and you know allow you to keep that asset, particularly if it's an important space where you take your children and you have you know important memories there. You brought up a good point. Very good. And the financial professional is going to look at your children's expenses as well. How much do you need to save for your children's college education? Should you commence a 529 plan, which is a savings plan for your child's education? And that's for college. And And earlier can also be used 10,000 a year for earlier in addition. And so that's K through 12 that you can now, that's a new change with the tax law that you can pull $10,000 a year. And it's, we've actually looked at that too, because my son is now going to private school and bless his little sister. She sees her big brother (laughs) do all these great things and just asked, can I go to this school too? Which, you know, oh, oh my word. So we've been very good at like, at funding these 529 plans. But one of the things I have found is that you also have to check with your state. So on the federal level, you're allowed to do that. But the actual implementation of whether or not you're allowed to take that $10,000 a year is a state by state. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because that's a hiccup that many people don't know. Yes. Your state, whether it's New York, New Jersey, most states have not fully adopted the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the new tax law. States reacted differently to this federal tax change. In the state tax world, we call this decoupling. So you have to look in terms of the deductions. New York provides a deduction on starting commencing a 529 in each year's contribution. New Jersey has a new law that's just starting on vacation homes, on certain number of days of rentals of Airbnb and vacation homes. So you really need to check the rules, the exceptions, and the individual state law on all of these tax changes you're doing. Your state didn't fully or automatically conform to the federal law, and the laws vary. So for New York State, because we actually have a lot of New York listeners what are the rules for that 529 plan and being able to take $10,000 out each year for K through 12 education? You get a deduction on your New York state return for each year as of putting money into the 529. The cap for years K through 12 private school is only $10,000 of that 529 can be used for the earlier years, but that might have a silver lining because you want the 529 to fund college Mm -hmm. and that will leave more of the principal available for the college education. Yes, we actually, I was very proud. So my husband just got his bonus. I just got my bonus and we funded the kids 529 plans, 10,000 each. So a total of 20,000, which I have to tell you, I'm very proud because we're well on the way. And so what's nice about that is 
we can deduct the 10,000 we gave to Sebastian and 10,000 we gave to Samantha on our tax return. But what Nancy's saying too, is that if we find ourselves in a pickle with private school, K through 12, that we can pull out of the 529 plan without a penalty or, and without a tax too. So this money, whatever it grows to is not taxed, which is so powerful. We can pull out up to $10,000 per child. But Nancy, you're 100% right. It's kind of like having a dive of chocolates on your desk, knowing that you're not going to have time for dinner, eat them throughout the day. And you were supposed to be eating that for your dinner. What's left over for dinner? It's the same thing here. So I am a little bit nervous for those people who can't truly afford private school, but are going to make a go of it because they're going to deplete their 529 plan and then find themselves when the kids are ready to go to college, not having enough. That is a big concern, a big concern. There's financial planning being done in many areas of one's life from college, residence, living, retirement planning. You really need a complete financial plan to sit down and look at the assets, liabilities, and expenses over a period of time. By the way, on education we just mentioned, you can still receive, if you or your spouse are seeking further education, there's the American Opportunity Credit, an education credit for up to $2,500 that's still available. That tax break stayed. But many tax breaks on the tax return, for instance, unreimbursed employee expenses, investment expenses, were eliminated this year. So that's all the more reason to do tax planning to decrease your tax liability. So we have flown through our time, but I want to talk about something that I think is really important, Social Security. Because, well, we as women, unfortunately, are more likely to find ourselves dependent solely on Social Security for our income. We're three times more likely to live in poverty age 65 and above versus a man. So understanding Social Security, particularly as a divorced woman, is really important and there's a lot of confusion and also misinformation. So can you kind of like settle straight of yes. like who's entitled to Social Security? What if you weren't working, but yet married for 10 years? What are the I you think about? like to combine Social Security and retirement planning. And that's really because Social Security is a defined benefit plan. So there's many factors to think about. A consideration if you're getting divorced in negotiating the divorce agreement, maybe social security equalization in determination of the alimony. Did one spouse stay home to raise the children? Was the other spouse working and has built up a high social security? So you're absolutely right, Stacey. We have to look at social security and there's Many considerations, for instance, Social Security benefits for a divorced spouse. The marriage 
has to have lasted 10 years or more Mm -hmm. for the divorce spouse benefit. The person receiving the divorce spouse benefit needs to be currently unmarried and the ex-spouse is entitled to social security retirement or disability benefits if they're at least age 62. Of course, the benefit increases if they get to full retirement age, which varies depending on the year born, but it's 66, 67, depending when one is born. The divorce spouse benefits stop upon remarriage of the spouse collecting the benefits. So, You really should consult your local social security office or a specialist for more details. There are many rules. For instance, after divorce, remarry. You can't say you want to collect benefits from the ex-husband. Another example, if after age 60, if the divorced ex-spouse dies, then you can collect social security and can remarry. The rules are And they're changing at times. So you really should consult someone for your specific time. Also, the rules on IRAs have changed, and that's part of the retirement planning. There's been so many tax changes this year. For new divorce agreements 2019 and beyond, alimony received is not taxable. That also means you can't consider your alimony if you're a stay-at-home mother, your alimony is non-taxable support if your agreement's in 2019. And it used to be taxable alimony income from pre-2019 divorce agreements qualifies one to fund an IRA contribution and build a retirement account. But tax-free alimony starting this year will not qualify as compensation. So to fund an IRA, to fund a 401k, going forward, one has to have earned income. And also the limits have been increased on both. The IRA contribution limit has been increased to $6,000 for those under age 50 and for those 50 and above 7000 And the limits on contributing to a 401k or similar defined contribution plan, 403b, is $19,000 under age 50 and $25,000 over age 50. So one can contribute much more than in the past, but it's very important to look at financial security and retirement. Social Security, and your retirement benefits, and if you need a quadro to divide marital retirement benefits, particularly in gray divorce, even more so. Nancy, I can't thank you enough for being here. We've gone through, oh my gosh, we've gone through so much. And just kind of a recap of that, of, you know, looking at when is the right time to reach out to a financial professional earlier, the better, you know, understanding more about your expenses, knowing more about the assets, what might be marital, what might be separate. And then also the tax implication, really important as well, particularly for owning your home, you know, looking at 
saving for college and helping your kids afford college and potentially private school. So we've gone through a lot. And what I'd love for you to do, can you share with us your website, any other information that might be helpful for our listeners to be able to find out more about your services and what you do? Yes, my website is www.smarttransitionstrategies. And just to add one more point, Stacy, well said, if one is contacting a CDFA, CPA early on for advice, the advice would be keep the costs down. Under the new tax law, you can no longer deduct certain professional fees and divorce as people had done previously. Good ways to keep costs down are mediation, collaborative process, arbitration. And my website also provides information on this. Well, thank you so much. I want to make sure that we uh, wrap up. We've gone through so much. I just want to say thank you for coming and listening and investing in yourself financially ever after a podcast. We come to you every other week. And if you have any questions that we can help you with, feel free to reach out to me. My email is Stacy S-T-A-C-Y at francisfinancial.com. Stacy S-T-A-C-Y at francisfinancial.com. You can also visit our website, www.francisfinancial.com. Thank you again, Nancy, and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Stacy.